There has been so much technological change in the world over the past few decades. Just think of mobile phones, computers, internet, AI. It's hardly a surprise, but the veterinary profession has not been immune to these changes. So what progress have we made? Where are we now? And where are we going? My thinking is, Brian, that eventually we're going to have cataloged so much data when it comes to veterinary medicine or radiology or, you know, other skill-based learnings that we're going to be able to take that data, look at the interpretation, look at the recommendations, and then use our brain that's able to look at all of the different factors to make a better outcome. This episode, we have a guest who is at the sharp end of veterinary innovation. My name is Sean Wilkie. I'm the CEO of Talkatu and the co-host of the Veterinary Innovation Podcast. I'm a multi-time uh, tech startup founder uh, from Nova Scotia, Canada, and uh, really happy to be here. You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. Sean, the really obvious change I have seen since my joining the veterinary profession is the change from entirely paper systems, client notes handwritten on the client cards, often illegibly, lab results sent to us by the post. In the early days, we didn't even have a fax machine. To where we are with almost all practices now using some sort of practice management software. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, the the PIMS or the PMS or the practice management system or, you know, whatever name you want to put on it has seen so much evolution because of the onset of software as a service, you know, and there's a lot of really interesting things happening in that world. The biggest one being, you know, things kind of moving away from the traditional client server model towards a cloud model. And with cloud technology becomes, there becomes so many opportunities to access that centralized system on different devices without the need to have an IT company or an IT person on staff. You know, the the central part of a, a veterinary practice is literally that practice management system. It's where all the billing's handled. It's where all of the bookings are handled. And yeah, that, that's gone from paper to a server in the clinic or in a closet in the clinic. And now it's gone to these really incredible companies that are coming out with you know, user interfaces that are designed with the user in mind, as opposed to designed by engineers for people that work in vet practices to use. And Brian, the thing that the thing that I think really hits at home, um, you know, for all of us kind of pre-COVID, we can relate to going to the airport, looking at the check-in screen of the airport agent, and it looks like some green screen from 1979 and they're pressing all of these buttons to check you into a simple flight and practice management software when it was first created was much like the systems that the airline check-in agents used proprietary confusing as hell complicated as you can imagine and it's changing from that type of system towards systems that are more like facebook or other web-based tools that all of us as users use daily. And the thing that differentiates those systems is really the way that the software is designed. So the whole practice management system 
is getting flipped on its head. You know, you see companies like Rhapsody that have raised $8 million dollars. Uh, out of the U.S., I think the the CEO of Rhapsody was a former uh, Amazon employee, worked for Jeff Bezos directly. He's raised a bunch of money, and he's not only designing software with the end user in mind, he's designing software that takes the pricing model and also flips it on its head. So their their pricing model is it's a percentage of revenue. So it's free software, free deployment. And we'll take a tiny little percentage of revenue. I don't know how that's going to work out because veterinarians really like their margins. Um, but you have very interesting things happening. Not only is the software being designed with the end user in mind, but there's different pricing models, different deployment models. And, you know, you're, you're seeing other companies build software. There's a company called Vetter out of the U.S. They build software primarily for people that use Apple products. You've got, a, I don't know, a friend of yours or somebody over in New Zealand, uh, Headley at EasyVet. I mean, these guys have been going at it for 15 years, but they're growing leaps and bounds. So I think they just opened a Dallas office and a UK office. And I mean, they are just adding features and functionality to that practice management software faster than anybody else in the industry. So it's changing. It's changing super fast. And, you know, there's an analogy that I often speak about when it comes to, you know, software development and deployment, which is, you know, if you bought Microsoft Office 1997, you got it on a CD, that software was created from 1994 to 1996. They tested it for a year and then they froze it in time and they shipped it out all around the world and it was never going to get any better unless you bought the next version. And this switch to software as a service and things being a subscription model is nice because it takes that upfront big burden out of the equation. You know, you're long, no longer talking about $20,000 or $5,000 or $3,000 to buy the software. You're going to pay per user. You're going to pay for as much as you need. But the beautiful part of this and the beautiful part of cloud technology is every week or every two weeks, the software has new features and it allows you as a veterinary professional to leverage best in breed technology and never have to learn a new piece of software again because the software just generally and very gently gets better. Sean, in our supposed paperless clinics, one major frustration is simply... It isn't. Most practices actually had an increase in documentation, admission forms, fee estimations, hospital notes, lab results, surgery notes, anaesthetic records, discharge notes, and finally invoicing. Each hospitalised animal seemed to have half a tree's worth of paper following it around the clinic. Your co-presenter in your veterinary innovation podcast, Ivan, developed SmartFlow, a revolutionary approach to workflow in a clinic that he has since sold to IDX. Every vet hospital has a whiteboard, what's happening, what's going on next, where are things at, where's the workflow. And what he really set out to do, and I think did a phenomenal job, is take all of those workflows and automate them through an electronic system, through the use of digital displays, and really optimize the workflow in veterinary hospitals by examining it and then build a tool that really allowed you to take a, a client and a patient from check-in 
to check out and really look and examine that workflow, that existing workflow, and then use software tools to kind of kind of progress through that journey of the veterinary hospital visit. You know, Sean, even though I consider myself to be fairly technologically literate, one issue that I've always struggled with is typing my notes. Even though my mother was a typist, I never actually learnt to type. I'm probably one of, you know, those good old-fashioned two-finger bashes and really did go through quite a few keyboards. One of the things that a lot of veterinary clinicians struggle with is, you know, all of this electronic tools, they're great, and a lot of them save time. You know, if you're going back to look at records, you know, if you had to do that with paper, it's it's an onerous process. And the ability to do digital searches and, you know, use technology like that has really helped. But the thing that people struggle with, you know, is really using those tools, you know, being comfortable using them. And then nobody likes to type. You know, nobody likes to sit down after a busy day or day filled with surgeries and type out medical records. You know, no, no veterinarian ever will say that the biggest thing that they learned during their vet school was the ability to be a really great note taker and a really great typist. And nobody ever wanted to do those things. So, you know, a little plug, a little self-indulgence plug for my my startup. You know, we that's what Talkatu. So we, we've started this company to, to really help take people's voice and turn it into text in a very simple, easy to use way. And our software works in any of the practice management software and any other software. So if there is a clinician that's struggling with, you know, digital records or even just finding the time to do good medical records, we can take that time and cut it at least in that half and allow them to just kind of progress through those medical records as quick as they can talk. Sean, I'll actually put a link for Talkatu on our website, if you like, which for anyone who wants to track that down, remember, we've got a new website, vetpodcast.weebly.com. So if there are any practitioners listening who would like to follow this up, I'm sure Sean would love to hear from you. Now, you mentioned earlier digital searches, Sean. In-house, most practices can whether they do or not is another matter, I suppose. But most practices have the ability to drill into their own database. You know, how many red cats with five legs had whatever disease and how was it treated and what was the outcome. But unfortunately, that's about as far as it goes. In New Zealand here, there is a national database to which all of our human medical colleagues supply information. And it's therefore possible to get a lot bigger picture of the disease and outcomes. Just even looking at the way that they're tracking COVID at the moment is just a a proof in point, I suppose. Do you foresee in future some sort of, I don't know, perhaps consolidation of disease prevalence, treatment and outcomes, whereby this information can be used for the greater good? Yeah, there is currently a push right now, and it's being driven not for those reasons, but because of what's happening in the veterinarian industry across the world. Um, particularly, uh, it's happened in Europe many years ago, and now it's it's found its way to the largest market in the world, which is the United States. And so what's happening in the United States is you have these consolidator groups that are buying up hospitals as quick as veterinarians are willing to sell them. You've got big, big groups that are buying. We actually just had an episode. I think it came out on our podcast uh, on the 4th of June. 
Um, and we had the guys from Southwest Veterinary Partners. I think they're up over over a hundred hospitals, maybe maybe even higher. And so they're a data driven company that buys hospitals. And one of the things that these consolidators are really struggle or really struggle with is normalizing the data, not from a necessarily from a case or disease or infection control perspective, but even just simple things like drugs, you know, inventory items. They have 55 different names uh, for one one uh, item that may be in inventory across their hospital group. So you are seeing a normalization of this data. And I think that I think that there's a lot of benefit that can be derived from normalization of the data and then you know, and then also making that data available. And I look at, you know, one of the one of my favorite episodes that we had on the Veterinary Innovation Podcast, we had a senior VP from Antec, which is a, a global, uh, a global company in the vet space. And they were talking about what they've been able to do because Antec is part of the Mars Group, Mars owns VCA, they own Blue Pearl, they own Bamfield and several other vet hospital consolidator groups. Uh, thousands of veterinarians work for this organization and tens of thousands or probably hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of, of case records. And when you can get your hands on this data set, in their case, they own all of the data. So it's a very unique position. But when you can get your hands on this data, and it's, especially if it's normalized, you can do some really amazing things with technology. You can start to predict trends. You can start to predict, you know, early markers of disease. And so I think that this is a natural evolution in the veterinary industry that, you know, you know, Veterol will be called Veterol no matter what PMS it's entered in. So I think that there is a massive opportunity for data normalization and for sharing this normalized data across subsets or groups of veterinary hospitals around the world to help advance the industry. It's it's a touchy subject because, you know, especially when you get into data ownership and then you get into, you know, data, I think it was a couple of years ago, surpassed oil as the most valuable commodity in the earth. And so when you look at this data, you know, you really do get into those touchy conversations, which is, you know, sure, we want to advance the profession. But do we really want, you know, a large company to own that data and be able to manipulate or change the market or sell more? So uh, it's happening. I don't know what that evolution looks like, but I know that there's a lot of benefit um, as well as a fair amount of risk with making that data more widely available. So let's just change tack slightly and talk about artificial intelligence and veterinary practice. This is how Stephen Hawking sees it. Success in creating AI would be the biggest event in human history. Unfortunately, it might also be the last, unless we learn how to avoid the risks. Artificial intelligence is different things to different people, all with their own concerns or excitement about what it could bring. Sean, how do you view artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, so, I, you know, I'll steal an analogy uh, from a friend of mine, um, Ivan, my co-host. So he and I don't and he stole it from somebody else. So I'll just claim it. But he said, you know, this, and there's this whole world, you know, we've got machine learning and then we've got artificial intelligence. And he said, um, 
machine learning uh, happens, uh, you know, in in PowerPoint, and AI happens on you know on the back of a napkin, and you know it's it's really interesting because. There's a great book for anybody that's interested in in this topic. I just love it. It's called The Singularity. It's by a guy named Ray Kurzweil, and he talks about this this merging together of man and machine. And you know, I think he predicts that 2040 is when it happens. So that means that we become permanently hooked up to technology. And and being a technologist, I really love this idea. And so, the current state of AI, in my opinion is is just a bunch of really fancy algorithms um which in my opinion is just a really just simply it's a bunch of very complex mathematical equations that determine an outcome and so ai everybody hears it and we hear all of the scary things you know like robots are going to take over the world and you know where we sit today we do have some ai or artificial intelligence that's able to learn from data sets that it ingests but it's only really a, a set of complex instructions or a filter you know that's really what it is it's like you put this information in it's going to be able to pattern recognize maybe image recognize but the way that it's able to do that is it has a massive set of data that it's able to the best example is one of the first examples of AI that I've ever seen, which is pictures of leaves that grow on trees. And so it was a, it was one of the very earliest example. I think it dates back to you know, early 2000. I was at a Google conference and they were talking about this image recognition software that they built. And so what they did is they took all kinds of different pictures of leaves uh, from all kinds of different angles. And then what you could do with this tool is take a picture of any leaf, and then it would go through this massive neural net, which is just a very big, very fast computer, and it would compare the picture to all of the data that it had in its catalog. And then it would say, oh, here's, it must be a, a yellow birch or a, or a maple, a red maple. And so very, very simple um, but it, all it's doing is is taking the data that it has in its repository and processing it very very fast. I mean, other things that you know we now see is is uh, facial recognition using AI, and it's the same thing. It's just a big data set that it's able to quickly compare imagery with or other forms of data and produce outcomes and results. And it's you know. AI is entering the vet space in a big way. Uh, you know, one of the neatest uh, episodes that we had this year uh, was with the founder of Signal Pet. He came on our show to talk about what they're doing. And it's a very similar example. They're taking radiographs and they're comparing radiographs to a large data set with all kinds of complicated data and measurements and helping, you know, any veterinarian enhance their radiograph reading skills by pointing them in the right direction because of the data set that they have. And then they do a beautiful add-on, uh, which is, you know, send it off to a radiologist for, you know, more details. And so you really the current state of AI, if that's if that's a decent explanation, is it's helping people make informed decisions 
by giving us more information when we go to look at something complex or something that's outside of our wheelhouse. And so I think that it really has a place. It's not going to be a replacement to, you know, the knowledge that's contained inside our brains, but it's going to help us get to outcomes faster. I think that's probably an important point, actually, is that it is not going to replace what we as veterinarians do. You know, I think one of the other ways to look at AI, and especially the current state of AI, is, you know, re- you probably remember those paint by numbers, you know, like the the things that you could get and you paint one number and then you paint another and then all of a sudden you've got this beautiful painting that someone that doesn't know how to paint was able to put together. And so I think what AI is going to do for us is it's going to fill in more of those blocks as time goes on. It's going to it's going to allow us to kind of do less work because of the data sets that are going to be acquired. And my thinking is, Brian, that eventually we're going to have cataloged so much data when it comes to veterinary medicine or radiology or, you know, other skill based learnings that we're going to be able to take that data, look at the interpretation, look at the recommendations, and then use our brain that's able to look at all of the different factors to make a better outcome. And so I don't know if it will ever replace, um, you know, the veterinary doctors or the veterinary radiologists, but it's going to make our jobs a lot easier. And I think that that's the beautiful thing in AI, the people that adopt AI into their practice, you know, whether it's a renal tech or signal pad or these other AI startups that are starting to do some really incredible stuff, it's going to make their job easier. It's going to give them more time to spend with their patients and their clients, and it's going to give them a leg up on people that aren't using this technology. Now, I'm sure there are a few closet trekkies listening. Do you remember Star Trek? Dr. McCoy and his handheld device called the tricoder, I think, that he would wave over his patients and it would check all of their vital organ functions in an instant. We aren't quite there yet, but we're sure on the way. Sean, you've interviewed a few interesting developers. Yeah, so I mean, the first one, uh, we did an episode with Scott of Jazz uh, talking about the wireless monitoring. And, and, you know, just to paint a picture for your listeners, you know, it's a device that straps on, uh, on the outside of the cages and is able to monitor all kinds of vitals wirelessly, heart rate, temperature, all wirelessly with zero touch. And so I think that that technology is one of the most incredible technologies. Use the same technology that they use in like self-driving cars. Think like Doppler and like really advanced technologies. And it's been used in other other industries. But the example that Scott gave when he was on our podcast, I think it was the San Diego Zoo. They had adopted some of their wireless monitoring. They had lions in a cage. You know, getting vitals from a lion is probably not a job that I would ever want to do. And so they're able to do this without ever entering the cage. Um, This stuff is a game changer. You know, it's it's brand new. It's expensive. But if you think of situations like that or even, you know, you have a, have a dog that's very upset and, you know, maybe maybe just not in a good situation, you, you don't want to necessarily have to tranquilize these animals in order to check their vitals. And, yeah, I mean, the risk, the, the risk that's taken out of it, I think, is incredible. And then there's also all of these other startups. Um, a friend of mine, Bruce Truman's at Babble Bark, and they've built a platform um, but they'll send the dog home with an activity tracker 
And that activity tracker writes to a piece of software. The veterinarian is able to watch that piece of software in real time. Well, the pet's gone home and, you know, maybe they're worried about the pet being lethargic and, you know, they're going to be able to do proactive medicine. And I think that that proactive medicine, which, you know, nobody's been able to do because you don't know what happens once the pet goes home. Uh, you know, it's anybody's guess. But if you're able to see, you know, the something that's likened to a Fitbit for that particular patient that's updating and sending that information back to the veterinary clinic in real time, and you have somebody that's job is to monitor those and call the pet parent that's, you know, maybe at risk for, you know, developing any number of diseases, let alone obesity, which is a huge issue in pets now, you may be able to proactively change those behaviors um, and add more value to the pet parent. So, I mean, the thing that's just blowing my mind, Brian, since I got into this industry and since we started this podcast is how deep and how wide the technology stack in veterinary medicine is getting. Every week when we have our show and somebody comes on and they're talking about this product or that product, my mind is just continually expanding because there's so much innovation happening in the pet care space. And I think most people just don't even know that this stuff's happening. I mean, it's just so easy to kind of live in our own little bubble um, and think of think of an idea and then you know you know you you hear it you know twenty years later and you wish you had heard it the, yesterday I think another talk, talking about your remote monitoring being a clinical veterinarian, there is nothing worse than having a sick cat or dog or horse or cow back in the hospital comes night time is the drip still running are they alive are they breathing is their temperature spiking is their heart doing something stupid at the moment a lot of practices are using zoomy kind of video monitoring i can see a huge advantage where you've got this doppler system you're not even needing to go near the animal you can wake up at three o'clock in that cold sweat hell did i do x check the parameters and away you go so and it's even better than that, Brian, because not only can you do that, but you can set alerts, right? So you can say, call my phone or, you know, or call these three numbers if this thing happens. And, you know, it just the peace of mind as as a physician uh, to be able to have those notifications and not have to have somebody stay at the hospital all weekend for one patient, you know, or, or to monitor a couple of patients. I mean, you, you know, all of your profitability goes out the door when you're doing things like that. So not only can you increase the profit of a, of your practice, you can also increase your quality of life. And, you know, you, you look at the cost of some of these devices and you're like, oh, it's probably not worth it. But then when you waste a couple of weekends, you know, sitting around, maybe catching up on paperwork or doing whatever else when you could have been off spending time with your family. And I think, you know, for me, that's the biggest point. You know, technology is not all good. I mean, I, I've been involved in technology for my entire career and the number of late nights and sore necks and damaged backs that I've had because I've been fighting with technology, which everybody can relate to, um, that's, you know, cursed at a computer at least once in their life. You know, there's there's a lot of frustration that comes. But man, when we get something right and we can rely on it, it literally changes our lives. You know, imagine if we had to go back to paper. Like, you know, some people think some people like I think they flirt with that idea. But nobody's done it. I don't know anybody that's like kicked out the computers and turned off the Internet and come back to, you know, encyclopedias or medical journals. It's just 
it's probably opportune. There was an advertisement on television last night from Spark, which is one of the telco providers here, where they were pushing 5G. And it was one of these little advertisement stories where it starts off with an old man finding a sick dog out in the garden at night time, takes it to his veterinary practice, and then it cut across to a high-tech looking veterinarian guy in Korea or Japan or somewhere and he is remotely using robots to fix the dog and the dog's all happy. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Sean. Crystal ball gazing. Is this sort of stuff going to happen or what do you see maybe five, ten years' time, the state of AI in veterinary practice? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it's fun fun to use one's imagination. So I think I think the five G thing is bigger than everybody believes it is. Uh, I think I think I would say that, and so I don't know if I like it. Um, so I, I kind of stop before I paint the picture of the future and say why I don't like it. Um, being a technology guy. I occasionally like to find a place that has no internet signal, no cell phone signal, and just disconnect and, you know, grab a book and and just kind of connect with nature and maybe other people and just escape from technology. And so I think the biggest curse that 5G bestows upon the world is internet is everywhere. And not just internet, but the highest quality, highest high-speed internet is accessible everywhere. And so I, I like this idea of disconnecting, going out into nature. And, you know, if I'm going to watch Netflix, I, do, I don't want to do it in some national park or at the beach. You know, I want to do it when, when I'm looking to down uh, scale or, you know, cool the batteries down. And so 5G, you know, has this promise of high-quality, high-speed internet everywhere. And I think that there's all kinds of opportunity. And so now let's let's look at the crystal ball. So, you know, from my opinion, if we can cover the globe with internet and not just decent internet, but amazing internet, that changes everything. You know, there's still lots of places in the world that are really handicapped by lack of good internet. I mean, in countries like Canada and New Zealand, there's all kinds of places that you can go where you can't get cell phone signal, you can't get high quality internet. And that definitely does, you know, cause some issues, you know, like, I love going on YouTube and figuring out how to fix somebody and not calling the repairman. And, you know, you just can't do that in some places of the world today. So that's going to change. That's going to be the first thing that changes. Now, once we get high quality internet, the whole AI thing is a different beast, but it powers it. You know, with with high quality Internet, we can do a lot of things that we couldn't do before because we can collect data from everywhere, not just some places, everywhere. And then ultimately what happens once we start to collect data, that's what makes AI better. AI needs a massive amount of data to be smarter, to be intelligent. And the reason that the current state of AI is where it is, is because it doesn't have enough data to eat to solve every problem. So as we feed it that data, and we're doing it every day in every way, every time we're on our cell phone, every time we click on a web page, every time we ask the internet a question, every interaction that we have with a smart speaker takes the data, organizes it, and helps AI continue to get better. And it's growing quick. You know, we're, we're at the start of the hockey stick curve from a 
you know, artificial intelligence perspective. The more data that we feed the system, the better the system gets, the more predictive it gets. And I think we're going to be in a place where robots are going to do menial tasks for us. You know, I don't know about any of your listeners, but the best device that I ever bought was my robot vacuum because I never vacuum anymore. You don't need to do those things. We have a, an Airbnb rental business and we unleash the robot vacuum after every stay and it cleans the floors better than we would ever do, you know, as a cleaner. So there's there's all of these areas and they're going to they're going to first pick off some of the most annoying tasks and then they're going to give us data to make informed decisions on complicated tasks. And then eventually, once we ingest all the data about the complicated tasks and then all of the decisions that were made around the complicated tasks, I believe we will start to live in a world where things become more and more automated and we are just we're just an examiner of the automation. Um, so I think we do end up probably not as quick as the prediction. I don't think it happens by 2040, but certainly by the end of my lifetime, I think our lives are going to be filled with a lot of interesting challenges because we'll have more time on our hands than we do today. Sean, it's going to be a brave new world. Thank you very, very much for spending the time with us. Feel free to give your podcast a plug again. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody that wants to dig into some of these technology things or see some of the innovation that's happening in the world, me and a friend of mine, uh, for no other reason than we were bored, uh, decided that we should interview the innovators in the vet space every week. And so we have a podcast that comes out every Thursday, and we have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. Brian, it's been my pleasure to be on your show, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. If you want to have a listen to Sean's podcast, it is called the Veterinary Innovation Podcast, and it certainly is worth a listen. As I said earlier, I have put a link on our website, which is vetpodcast.weebly.com. To find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, just search at Vet Podcast and like us while you are there. Subscribe to us on your usual podcast player, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on your player and share us with your friends. Our website is vetpodcast.weebly.com. Weebly is W E E B L Y, or email vetpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>